yo, yo, it's your girl and boy CT. I'm Cindy Barnes. And I'm Travis Barnes. And we are the founders of the Overcomers Podcast. The Overcomers Podcast is designed to help you overcome adversity and live your dreams. Every week, we will be sharing stories of people who found their strength in their struggle. The Overcomers Podcast is sponsored by Journey 333. And that's a lot of threes, so let me tell you what it is. It's fitness, coaching, and nutrition. It is a place where we help you to look better, live better, and feel better, and it is mind, body, spirit. Today, we're going to help you get your mind right with our special guest. Hello, Overcomer Nation. Wow, do I have a treat for you. I have author Heather Deffenbaugh in the house today. She wrote a book called From Ashes to Beauty, and the subtitle talks about how someone with two mentally ill parents went from just surviving to now thriving. And so if you've ever dealt with struggle in your life, if you've ever had to overcome anything, I love this title from ashes to beauty, because think about it. What is our logo on the Overcomers podcast? It's the Phoenix, right? So if you're an overcomer, and I know you are because you're Overcomer Nation, then you are going to love Heather. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you, Travis. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. It's just, uh, it's an awesome story. I mean, I love the fact that you've taken time in your book to weave in classic rock songs that make sense <laughs> of the situation like folks you got to read this book it's one of a kind but uh you know i guess we can dive right in if you will uh tell us a little bit about i don't know if you want to call it the inspiration for the book or the circumstances of your life that led you to uh to writing this book and a little bit about your story if you will yes of course well i really felt the calling to share my story probably about 22 years ago. And there were little seeds planted along the way. And whenever I would even share a snippet of my life with somebody, they would be marveled at how I was so, um, you know, quote, quote, normal. <laughs> how did you get to where you are today, Heather? How did you even get through that. And it would just be such a morsel, such a small amount that I started to realize, wow, there, there really is a story here to share to inspire people that are going through the same thing or have a loved one going through the same thing. And maybe they're stuck and maybe they're in a, a toxic cycle and they need to know that they too can be an overcomer. They too can go from, you know, a place of destitute ashes to a place of complete thriving and finding your purpose and joy and so as I um, kept getting the call, I was still raising my kids. So I kind of put it on the shelf and I was like, yeah, you know, I know I, I can maybe just inspire one person at a time. But then the call became crystal clear and God opened every door, put a publishing company right in front of my face. Um, and then just crazy things started happening. Like I'd open my inbox, checking my emails, and there would be a random email with the um, title, are, are you called to write? Do you mm. feel called to write? Like all these little things kept <laughs> happening. And I'm like, okay, God, clearly you're shouting at me now. So I'm going to start putting one foot in front of the other and explore this and see how it goes. Yeah, signs are a real thing. I mean, they are in my life. And, and I hope that for you, Overcomer Nation, I hope that uh, I hope that you also believe in signs. I've, I've found that they led me to naming my franchise and starting my business and so many other things in life. So that's pretty cool how you just kind of felt that that nudge in every direction to share your story. Yeah, um, it's so easy to ignore the nudge, but when you actually embrace it, amazing things can happen from it. 
well, I can understand why your friends might have asked you. They might have said, well, I just can't believe where you've come from and who you are today, you know, because maybe there's a stigma that if you had that situation that you wouldn't be the person that you are. And then the nudges to share your story are so that other people can know what's possible for them, no matter what circumstances they are coming from. I have no doubt. Um, so, yeah, tell me a little bit about, uh, so, you know, you you had the nudges and, you know, you knew that you had to share this story. And, and now there's like, in this story, there's all these classic rock songs and, and there's so much that you share. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about it and how it all came together. Yeah. So the nudges, I will speak to that for a second and then move a little bit more into the book and the music and the significance of the music. But the nudges, um, when they started to become really real and the thought of like writing a book, I always knew that I had the ability to write. I remember getting a writing award, even in junior high, only one person a year gets it. And I was so surprised or whenever I would write um, various things, even just writing a letter to a friend, or I would write something. Um, I was very involved in booster clubs and always a, a president or a vice president of some nonprofit or some organization. And I would write things. They would say, God, you write so well. You really write well. So I started to believe that. I think, you know, you don't have a lot of confidence initially. I know so many first-time authors go through that. And I started to really believe that. Then came the second obstacle, and that was the vulnerability. And I am going to be 100% vulnerable and transparent, which really puts me in um, a, a, a state of fear and it ignites some shame. And I've gone this far and nobody knows these stories and everybody sees me one way. Um, they see uh, all the great things. And I think that's what really made me realize, you know what, though, it take, what it takes to get there, you know, people need to know that... Um, it's, it's, it's real. It's possible. I'm relatable. I, be, I become more relatable to a lot of people because I've gone through so many things and the book has definitely triggered many, many people to um, examine their own lives and their own strongholds. And because those things affect every relationship that you're in. So the purpose behind it, I started to see the purpose, the purpose and the pain and what it can do and how greatly it can impact thousands of people. But my motto was, if I could just help one person. Nice. So that's definitely been accomplished. And then some and probably people I don't even know that it's helping. So as I began to write my story, um, music is what got me through a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. So I grew up, you know, a teenager in the 80s and um, all kinds of music, but specifically classic rock and hard rock. I grew up listening to that. My mom and dad were very, very musical into music not they didn't play it but that is what spoke to them and helped them uh, connect helped wow. them uh, feel not alone and they were kind of I always called them my Woodstock hippie parents they were really into the classics Led Zeppelin the Rolling Stones Aerosmith all those types of bands Bob Dylan particularly um you know from the 60s and 70s so wow. I grew I grew up with it and listening to it. But the crazy thing is I did the same thing. So there would be songs where the lyrics matched the circumstance of what I was going through. And it helped me to not only feel not alone and uh, connected to, but it helped me endure it. Mm -hmm. So that, and then there were other songs that lifted me above the chaos and I just felt invincible. 
I felt like I'm not defined by my circumstances. I can do anything, you know? And some gave me um, the ability to actually feel sadness and some gave me the ability to fight. So music is powerful, right? We know that. Oh, it's powerful. So there are so many songs. I think there's 60 songs, but they're obviously not the whole song. Some of them have almost all the lyrics. Some of them just have a bridge. Some of them might just have the chorus. But every song matches the circumstance that I am going through. So it looks like the songwriter wrote it for me, almost like a movie or a play that's being played out. Maybe it will be someday. It I, will I be, love, yes. I love that. I'd love to touch on a few things that you said, maybe in a little bit of a reverse order there. You know, uh, our listeners know that the podcast is sponsored by our fitness franchise, but I heard it said like this once about music that what exercise is to the body music is to the soul right mm -hmm. you know like it, it can just lift you up like that and and uh one i, I just love the fact that you said i had to be 100 percent vulnerable if i was going to share this right because it is when we're most vulnerable that we're most authentic and it's that part of ourselves that can truly help somebody like nobody gets uh, a life-changing lesson from you or nobody gets life-changing inspiration from you if you just kind of share. So thank you for your vulnerability. And, and I love this belief. You said, I had to believe it, right? You know, like everybody told you you're a great writer and, uh, you know, that you've done different journalism throughout your life. And people are like, oh, okay, you know, boy, this girl can write, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, knowing that you're good at something and then believing it really changes the outcome, right? So I think that you're giving us a lesson too and and how we attract things into our life, right? If you if you believe something, then you're going to see the opportunities for it. And if you don't, you're going to see the obstacles. So, uh, you know, kudos to you for the belief in yourself. Uh, I love the way that you shared this music. And I can't wait to hear some of the examples of different lyrics as we get into the story. So uh, please continue to share with us a little bit about it. Yeah, thank you, Travis. Thank you for that affirmation. It's, it was well said. Um, so the music, uh, so much, and it starts out, you know, the book opens up, there's a, there's a prologue and an introduction, and I really encourage people to read that part, because I know some readers like to get right to the chapters, but it really sets the foundation. Um, I've had a couple people say, God, I dove in, and, you know, I, I was up till two o'clock in the morning, I had to know what happened next, and I'll ask them, did you, did you get the opportunity to read the prologue or the introduction? Um, and a handful of them say, well, no, I skipped right into the story. And I'm like, go back. It, it will make a difference. And it always has. So the music really kicks off slow in the beginning because um, it opens up when I'm about four years old. But you can see it's when I look, it's funny. It's kind of precious. I look at myself like that's really sweet. The songs that impacted me when I was little mm -hmm. and I'm playing those. So I mean, it does start off with a Disney song, I mean, which is appropriate at four. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. But then it really does. I think the early years were um, that I have in there are Super Tramp and Fleetwood Mac, um, Pink Floyd. There's, uh -huh. there's different ones because that is what my dad was playing. My dad, who had schizophrenia, music was his way of communicating. Uh, it was a sense of calming and connection for him it ignited um, a passion in his heart and it really kind of took the, the chaos out of his mind and, and brought him into music. And Pink Floyd, especially, a lot of their songs are about 
mental illness that people might not realize that they had an original band member, Sid Barrett, that struggled with mental illness. And um, he was in the band for such a short time. And then David Gilmore took his place. So my dad would explain these things to me. And he bought me my first like real album that wasn't Sean Cassidy or Disney. <laughs> and he those, like my first rock album, let's call it. And right. he got me Dark Side of the Moon. So that was a really uh, influential. And there's a good, I want to say three or four Pink Floyd throughout the um, the book where it really does match. And a lot of them are connected to stories about my mom and dad or, you know, when I was in the chaos with my mom and dad, I believe Comfortably Numb's in there. And um, Wish You Were Here is a song about my mom and dad. So when you're in that chapter, I believe that's in part three of the book and it's called The Fishbowl. And um, it'll make sense because there's a line about two lost souls swimming in a fishbowl year after year. And that's what mental illness does. And so you can see the connection there. And then there's great ones. Like when I got into high school, opening up the chapter, I was already raising myself. I was having to navigate through homework, two jobs. Um, and I kind of put on a facade of a perfect life so I could escape the foster care system, which I did very well. And I had uh, raised my younger brother, you know, my younger brother, you know, for, for lack of a better word, raised. I mean, my brother gets a lot of credit for making the decisions he did, but I was kind of his, um, I was his anchor. Right. And I put, you know, I, I went grocery shopping at 12 and put, you know, at least canned food and cereal and things in the house and, you know, things to get us by. But that opening chapter was, um, or I should even open into the part three of the book was White Snake. Here I go again on my own. And uh. happening. Here I go again on my own. I have no parents. I have to live in this suburban town and, you know, fake it till I make it. Um, mm. So there were songs like that, but there's a really powerful song. I was on another podcast and, and she had brought it up because she couldn't believe how um, parallel it was like, and, and it was a journey song off their escape album, which is their number one album. That's where we get don't stop believing, right? Mm -hmm. um, Who's crying now open arms, some of their biggest hits, but there's a song called mother father. And it is right when my mom goes into her first episode and what I was dealing with. And, and it describes like my family, just a snippet for the moment. And it's a song that never made mainstream. You didn't really hear it on the radio, but such a powerful song. So I've had a lot of people write to me and because people have a tendency to, to uh, play it on their Spotify or Apple music. They're like, I have to look up the song because right. I'm lyrics it sounds familiar I'm like I think I know that song and then all of a sudden they're like I know the song and wow they see the song in a whole new way that's so cool that's so cool I, I'm a I'm a music lover and appreciation <laughs> of the arts and uh, you know I can't wait for this uh, book to become a play now let me ask you you just mentioned that your father had schizophrenia yes. and uh, you know uh, your mother I'm not sure her diagnosed mental illness yeah I was diagnosed with bipolar in bipolar. probably 1987 maybe they had just really discovered what this was and that's the term that they and, and now we know bipolar is, is more diverse there's a lot more to it there's bipolar one and two but they've also just come up with a recent diagnosis called schizoaffective and it's somewhere between bipolar and schizophrenia and that's me really watering it down and simplifying it but it's kind of there's delusions attached to it so my mom had severe delusions not hallucinations like my dad like my there were there were people that were talking to him or 
people that were visible that weren't visible to us, right? Where my mom would have delusions like God is calling her to the mountains and she can't be a mother anymore and she needs to leave and she'd be gone for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. Yeah, just, or she would hear, that she would think you can hear her her thoughts. You can hear my thoughts. You know what, you know what I'm thinking. So very delusional things we now know uh, is more, um, it's so effective than it is bipolar. It's a little more severe. So, yeah. How old were you the first time that you realized, hey, you know, there's something not right with my parents? When I was little, I knew there was something wrong with my dad. So I was born into my dad having the schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And I tell the story, I believe it's in the introduction about my mom and dad. It's quite tragic. They were high school sweethearts. They grew up in the San Fernando Valley in California. Um, they had dreams, they had hopes, they had their whole world in front. And my dad was a mandatory draft into the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. along with my uncle. Um, you know, I come from a family of war heroes. My mom's uh, dad and my dad's dad both fought in World War II. So they, uh, my dad, though, um, was not fit for war. And he went kicking and screaming. He did not want to go, um, but he was forced and so that's kind of where it started. Um, they started seeing little signs when he was in boot camp, but it was when he was actually sent to, you know, uh, Saigon and things. And so there's some really crazy stories that he went through. They begin to see that that there was something very wrong and, and his father was instrumental in getting him an honorable discharge. So my dad was 100% disabled Vietnam veteran, honorably discharged from the war, but spent a good six months in a psychiatric uh, hospital. And my mom was pregnant with me at the time. So when I was born, he was already gone. So he was gone. And um, my mom tried to navigate that for about five years. So the story kind of, there's a little bit more in the prologue, a little more details, but then we kick off at age four and my time with my dad, I have very vivid memories at four. And that's what trauma does. You, you, it doesn't ever leave the body. You can bury it as much as you want, but the body keeps the score. And I have a reference to that book um, in my story. So my dad, I knew something was off uh, the whole time. Um, he wasn't like other fathers. He slept all the time. He took a lot of medication. He struggled with alcoholism in the beginning. Um, and I was submersed in that life. Uh, some crazy stories. There's a great chapter of when my dad, my dad eventually stopped drinking, thank God. But, you know, the fact that we were protected and surrounded by angels, I was in the car with my dad all the time. And this is back in the 70s, no seatbelt, hanging out in the hatchback, sitting on the floor. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's how it was. <laughs> climb my seat. My feet were out the window, and you know, my dad and I would crank rumors, Fleetwood Mac, and we'd be singing. You know, don't stop thinking about tomorrow, and it was a happy time. Even though my dad was sick, I still always felt the love. But he would take us to bars, and I talk about the scene in the bar and what it was like to be a kid being dragged into a bar for three, four hours. And the song from Eric Church, I've developed a fond affection for country just in the last decade. It's called Crazy Land, and it describes this scene. So so that's in the book, too. There's a little bit of country in the book. There's a little bit of uh, um, contemporary Christian music in the book. So it really covers much. But my mom... And all the genres. No all matter the genres. Yeah, all the yeah, genres, yeah. yes. The, the, they're all so wonderful in their own way. 
So my dad, it was tough as I got older. My dad couldn't participate in, in normal dad things. You know, he wasn't the protector and the provider and um, somebody I could talk to about all the different uh, seasons of my life, emotional times in my life when you really need a dad as a young girl. Uh, but he did what he could with the capacity he had to give. And that is something I can see now as an adult. And the love was always there. But there were some very, very crazy, intense times. My mom, I think that was the hardest to deal with because she was kind of the glue. And the story is so much bigger than what we can fit in this podcast. But she had two sisters who were addicts. I'd talk about that. Um, so there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of functioning adults around me at all. And my mother was really kind of the glue and she was feisty and she definitely had signs early on. I could, my brother and I can see it now, but because I relied on her when I was 11 is when she had her complete nervous breakdown. That was devastating because the mother that I knew that I relied on, that was my only sense of normalcy and safety and provision and protection was gone. And there was this new lady that took over and she was not a safe person. Mm -hmm. So that was ironically much harder than my dad's schizophrenia because that's, that's all I knew. I only knew my dad one way. Yeah. So you didn't really get your mother back after that, not after the breakdown. No. But, well, let me ask you, you know, you mentioned there were many intense times can you tell us like about one of the most intense times that you had, you know, growing up? Mm, wow. That's a hard one to narrow down, but <laughs> there's so many stories. I think that's why when people read the book, I had one gal send me a letter. She goes, I just had to put it down. I was just so wrong. I just was so angry. How, why so much can happen to one person like this? Yeah. And you know, thank God there's such a level of protection there in my own heart that I just was like, you know, it's, uh, I know it's almost an out of body experience. Like I'm looking at someone else's life, but one of the times, I think one of the hardest times for me was when my mom would cycle in and out of, um, mental institutions, specifically state in institutions, because we really didn't have any money. So it was this, this vicious cycle that I talk about in the book. And this is probably from age for me, from age 13 to age 22, uh, where it was just dozens and dozens of times, but the hardest times being age 13 to about 17, right? Because at 17, I met my my boyfriend turned husband, still husband. <laughs> so I had a whole new world, you know, that, that's the name of a chapter. Uh, so, but when I was trying to navigate it all by you my- You play the Aladdin song in that, the whole new no. world? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no Aladdin song. The only one Disney song in the very beginning. But the funny thing is a lot of the chapters are titles of songs. So even though the, it, it's a title of the song, it doesn't mean that song will be in the chapter. There will be another song that speaks to the narrative of the chapter. But the tone, the tone of overall of what it's about will often be a song. So like I talk about my therapy journey in part four and it's called Emotional Rescue. So do you remember who sings that? Emotional Rescue? 
I don't. I don't. You'll have to I tell love me. to put people in these quizzes. That is a Rolling Stones song. Oh, okay, okay. Rolling Stones. <laughs> yeah, you have you've chosen a lot of great artists. Uh, yes, uh, they're they're all over the place. So Journey, uh, you got White Snake, you know. White, yes. Yeah, yeah. I've got no. Pat Benatar, I've got Tom Petty, I have um Heart and uh Super Tramp and Journey, and um I have uh Chris Stapleton and Eric Church. Yeah, uh, you know, so that's I've got uh, Mercy Me and Lauren Daigle and some of these really wonderful for King and Country. Um, I love you. I love using Tom Petty music when I feel like I'm being mistreated. That's you right. better watch what you say. You <laughs> that's right. Watch what you do to me. <laughs> right. I could have put that one in there super easy. Yeah, there's a great one in there. I think I have three or four Tom Petty songs, but there's a great one in there when I finally left the toxic boyfriend. And that's a huge story that resonated with a lot of people, the toxicity that I was in from 13 to 17. And that's a whole nother. So not only only am I dealing with mentally ill parents, but I'm in this toxic relationship. And then I had to deal with some sexual abuse by people that were supposed to take care of me, just just all kinds of different things, Um, suicide attempt. Um, So there's many things that it touches on that somebody has gone through that they have been very triggered by reading the book. I've kind of opened a portal and I, I tell them this is an open portal for an opportunity to heal and yeah. overcome, not to make you feel horrible and shamed and condemned and despair. There's two ways it can go. Mm-hmm. We want it to go to the thriving section. And that's the point. And in the back of the book, I have resources too. So I don't just leave you hanging. Like, so what do I do about my thing? But to finish your question, my mom would have me come to the hospitals, these um, uh, institutions. Once she was well, it would be the cycle of her, you know, going into an episode. The episode would go from intense anger and um, really uh, very ornery, uh, abusive behavior mentally abusive behavior, emotionally abusive behavior, sometimes physical. I mean, she would throw things at me and whatnot, but um, then it would go into deep despair, uh, suicidal thoughts, attempts for suicide, don't want to be here anymore, or just leave to the mountains, um, end up homeless somewhere to, okay, you're not well, you're going in, you know, um, if, if they can, if they know that you are suicidal and you confess that, they can put you on a mandatory 72 hour hold and take you into a psych ward against your will. So she would go into the psych ward and then after 72 hours, they stabilize you and then she would stay. So she would be there sometimes for three months for a really long time. Then it was into a halfway home you go, a board and care, and then hopefully restabilize you. And then we'd start all over again. So when she would be in a psych ward, I'd come down there. And when I got, when I started driving at 16, she would want her her makeup and her lipstick. She was a makeup artist and a beautiful woman. And so she'd want to get all back to normal again, but she would kind of parade me around like a trophy piece. Mm. I'd go in and these people would want to, you know, touch my hair and just interacting with that. It was so overwhelming. And so there's certain smells that are triggers for a long time. I couldn't go into a hospital, certain Mm. things like that. And, you know, now I can, but um, that was a really hard time. Sure. And then obviously being in an episode with her was a yeah. tough time. And I, I described some of those in, in detail. Yeah, you're you're a young girl who needs her mother, but you're kind of parentified in that moment to where you're being the parent who's driving and taking your mother the things that she needs. And 
Yeah. And then she's taking advantage of the situation and putting you in uncomfortable spots. Um, you know, there's a couple of topics uh, that this show has touched on before that I'm hoping that you'll touch on for us and uh, also maybe even give some listeners some advice if they have a loved one that's dealt with this or if they're dealing with it themselves. But, um, you know, you mentioned sexual trauma. A episode two talks about a person that, you know, was sexually abused. Uh, uh, and I guess if you could, if you if you don't mind sharing, I know you're 100% vulnerable. What was that situation where, uh, you know, you were put in a position where people that were supposed to take care of you and you, you wound up in this um, sexual abuse situation, if you would? Yeah, well, it's, you know, your reaction to it is really contingent on your age mm -hmm. and then what you've been through. So, you know, the first encounter, I was only four. And, but I remember very vividly how I felt. And um, for a long time, I think when it happens to you and you become an adult and you didn't tell anybody and, you, you know, or even if you did tell somebody, um, you, you bury it down. And if you, if you never deal with it, because you can deal with it on limited capacity when you're a child, but it needs to be revisited when you're an adult because it affects the lenses you see through. It can affect intimacy in your own relationships. It can affect your reaction to certain, even smells or sounds. Um, and so getting therapy and navigating through that time so that you can take that memory and desensitize it and reprocess it, that it's not happening over and over again when mm. you have these triggers is really critical for people who have been through it. I think if you've been through it and you were younger and maybe even got therapy, let's say best scenario, it happened, you told somebody who cared about you, they did something about it, they put you in therapy and you know these things did not happen. I, mean, I did tell my mom and my mom did confront the girl and you know it's so sad because you know there was molestation happening. Usually these broken people hurt people hurt mm -hmm. other people. So this is what's happening. Um, but, you know, you don't want to talk about it. And a lot of times a child, the parents, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to bring it up. It will make it worse. It brings them shame. Um, there's so many aspects involved in it. So when you are older, when you become an adult, especially if you have children of your own, it's, it's critical that you revisit it and make sure that you have desensitized it, that you have grieved it, you have processed it, you know that it is not your fault. You know that um, that 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 was a terrible thing that happened and you have that opportunity and there's different therapy modalities. And of course, I recommend you do this with a licensed therapist, mm -hmm. but there's several modalities. What we have today, the opportunity that we have to help people today with modalities that are so effective. For me, it was EMDR, which is a, a type of it's eye movement um, desensitization and reprocessing. So mm -hmm. it's something listeners can just look up if they want to know more about it, just Google it. But um, some therapists have a different technique in the way they do it, but it, it worked for me. And um, it, it's funny, I, I tried it when I was 30. Um, I talk about that's the first time I really went to therapy for me at 30. I waited that long. And I still was a skeptic. I wasn't ready to be super vulnerable and open up too many portals. So it only scratched the surface. So the EMDR didn't really work. But when I started writing the book, that is what propelled me into it because I started opening up all these stories. I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing this. 
I'm not doing this. I'm going to write a fitness book. I know <laughs> I signed a contract, but we're going to write a different book. We are not going to go down this road. And, you know, God wouldn't have it. My editor wouldn't have it. Even my husband believed in me too much. And I knew I needed to work through these things in therapy. And that's what really helped me. Not only helped me get through it, but have very detailed, vivid memories and have conversations with my mom too. So that that's what I would say if you were super young. If you were a teenager, which mm -hmm. um, I had that too. So I feel like I'm in a very unique position to <laughs> help people navigate. Unfortunately, I had it happen several different little times throughout my life, um, that's when uh, you can feel like it's your fault. You know, did I dress a certain way to bring it on? Did I, or maybe you told somebody and um, they're kind of questioning you as if, you know, it's never your fault. It's never anything you did when somebody does something like that. So I think that's the first is tackling the shame. And that's when you can overcome um just all of the detrimental things that it's doing to you in your, in your psyche, in your mind and in your soul. Sounds like, a, you know, part of the suggestion that I'm gathering, you know, with the EMDR and the different things is that uh, sometimes, you know, you have to go back and you have to recollect this part of yourself that stayed stuck there, you know? Um, and, and, you know, that's the encouragement for any listeners that are either dealing with themselves or, or, you know, have a loved one that's, you know, suffered sexual trauma. Um, you know, this is how to overcome, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta find that therapy that's going to be able to help you to recollect so that you're not, can, you say desensitize, uh, and that's to avoid, keep on, you know, having triggers where you're going to relive, uh, you know, the feelings right. of that moment and be stuck there. Um, right. really good, really good. And with everything that's happened to you, um, and, you know, all the different circumstances, it, it brought you to this point. Um, where we talk about being a suicide survivor. Uh, yeah. so, um, so, so if, uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Okay. You got it. Yeah. That is, uh, that was a tough topic. I think that was the hardest chapter for my brother to read because he didn't know about it. Um, but you know, I was only 14 years old and I just had had enough and I didn't have any support system whatsoever. And on top of that, I was just operating very, very intensely, um, out of a completely empty bucket. So I was helping to raise my brother, you know, and he's 11 and I'm trying to, you know, get homework done. And I had just been through some, some massive trauma with the, um, the boyfriend. Uh, so all of these things, I had a very, uh, um, how would we call him? He was, a he was my stepdad and he was not a nice man. He, he was, so I'm dealing with all of this stuff and my mom is sick and my dad is sick and my aunts are caught up in drug addiction and I don't have a grandma or grandpa. There, there's just, isn't, there isn't anybody around. So it started to feel very heavy, very heavy. And I was playing this role, you know, going into the eighth grade, I was um, very well put together, always very well dressed, very articulate, super smart. I was in all honors classes. Um, I had a vivacious personality. I embraced life, um, music, people, uh, everything. And uh, so I had all of this and it was just kind of like, I was just full speed, like a bullet train. And finally just 
running out of gas, you know, running out of gas. And so I write about that uh, fairly vividly. And um, it's something I buried and completely forgot about. I had buried a lot of these memories and sometimes I would have dreams and I'm like, did that really happen? You know, like the one when I was in preschool and my mom verified it. Thank God I asked her and she just, I remember she couldn't believe she goes, you remember that? Mm -hmm. I'm like, of course I remember that. Every detail, honestly, <laughs> like I thought it was a nightmare. I was just I kept having this bad dream. Um, so the suicide, most people, I think I told my husband, I think he said, no, you told me this when you were in your thirties because, but I really hid that one from a lot of people. And it was just a moment where I was in complete despair and you know, there was no internet. There was no easy thing to reach out. There was no suicide hotline. There wasn't any, I just, I was just done. I was just done. And so I made an attempt and thankfully I got super sick instead of it working. And, um, I talk about that. There's a song that's attached to that. And I feel there was divine intervention there. Mm -hmm. I really believe it. There was divine intervention there so that I would be here today um, because just the, the whole lineage of, of what, uh, you know, my adult children and how many people I've helped and thank God it didn't work, but, um, yeah, I, I took a bunch of pills. And so instead I ended up getting super sick and, but nobody was around. So it was just, it was just like me and myself and the demons that I was dealing with, but then there were the angels and then. Yeah. Then there was like, then there was Jesus. It was like, then I really, I was feeling this tug of war from my soul and God won out. <laughs> well, thank God. Literally, <laughs> figuratively. Um, what would you say uh, to, you know, people that may be listening that have loved ones that suffer with major depression, possibly thoughts of suicide, or maybe somebody's listening that's struggling themselves. Um, you know, what's the, uh, you know, you've given us some great advice about sexual trauma and, you know, getting with a therapist that can help you to desensitize and, and release that stuck part of your past. Um, you know, what would you say to helping someone overcome those uh, suicidal tendencies? Yeah. If someone is honest about how they're feeling or they're like, God, I just don't want to be here anymore. They're saying any kind of phrases where they're just done move into that space with them. Don't, and, and don't gaslight them. You know, don't be like, well, everybody's having a hard time or other people have it worse or, you know, don't, you know, or maybe you're just overreacting, you know, or, ah, uh, you know, you know how many people you would hurt. Those are the worst phrases you can tell somebody. They already don't feel worthy. Mm -hmm. So, so you really want to avoid anything that has condemnation in its tone. Um, and just meet them where they're at and tell them that, you know, you're, you're so loved and what you're feeling is so real mm -hmm. and valid and, um, and I care and you are valuable and you are not alone. I think that's being alone for me and probably for many listeners is like the number one thing that can pull you into such isolation and despair that can lead to that because you just, you know, you could have people that say they love you all around you, but you can't feel it. And you're, you're so alone. And so knowing that you're not, and knowing that you're valuable and you matter and I love you and let's walk through this together. 
you know, mm-hmm. or let's get some help. Well, I think we all could use that. I mean, obviously they're, they're, they need intervention at that point, yeah. but they, they have to feel safe. Yeah. You know, and really, really great advice. So I think that there's a tendency towards the condemnation tone, you know, like, you know, what are you thinking? You know, how many people you'd hurt, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. But to, uh, to validate somebody instead, meet them where they're at, um, make them feel valuable. That, that is really, really good. Uh, great advice. Um, what is it now? Let's, uh, let's talk about what you hope, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. What do you hope all the benefits will be for the readers of this book? Uh, you know, what would you want to tell our audience that they'll take away from this book? You know, maybe just a few things, if you will. Mm. Well, my biggest hope is that they are inspired to go from surviving to thriving. I think that people will recognize where they're just getting by, where they're surviving, where they're gaslighting themselves. I think we do that a lot. We're like, you know, hey, somebody has it worse. It's a coping mechanism. And it's it's not to say you shouldn't be doing that. There's no condemnation in doing that. It actually serves you well. It helps you it helps you get by and deal with what you're in, but it also keeps you stuck. Mm-hmm. So I want people to move out of these cycles of, of being on a hamster mill and just going in circles. And, you know, you've got people dealing with, um, you know, toxic relationships. So they go from one to another to another, and there's a pattern. So you can identify a pattern in your life or you start something and you never finish it. You're a big procrastinator, you know, because you have a false belief system happening within you. And that comes from trauma. Everything stems from that. So when you get down to the root, then you're able to make an actual life change, a behavior change, a shift that's mm-hmm. going to lead to thriving. But if you're chasing the symptom all the time, then you're going to chase your tail and it's exhausting. So I hope that as they read that, A, they feel connection. They feel like they're not alone. That's what I'm, that's a lot of the feedback I'm getting. Like, oh my gosh, I can talk to somebody that gets me. They get this. They've been there and look at what she's doing and look at, you know, how she's thriving. And I'm thriving also uh, emotionally, which is huge, but you'll see the whole story that how I got to where I am. And it's, it's a journey. I want to make sure I reiterate that I have not arrived on Thrive Mountain. <laughs> right. I stay here every day. <laughs> you get knocked oh, off oh. sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I no. wish I could just camp out on Thrive Mountain, but right. the reality is that's heaven. So we're that, this side of heaven, we're going to have struggles. We're going to have problems. And I vacillate, but I move through it quicker. Mm. I have self-awareness. I can self-regulate faster. Um mm. It doesn't paralyze me and cripple me and keep me in fear and then keep me skeptical because now I'm going to shut doors. You know, if you know, it's like something happens, let's say, you know, you, you, you got, I don't know, we'll use something light. You get in a bad car accident, right? And um, the car that, that flew at you was, was a red car. And then, so now every time you see a red car, you're triggered and you'll never buy a red car. And actually, you don't even like the color red. You don't even want to be around it anymore. That's what trauma looks like, you know, on on a basic level. So when you start to recognize that, then you can move through that and you'll be able to embrace red. You know how they say, you know, if you're afraid of something, do it. You're afraid of heights, go jump out of a plane. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So to, to, to one, uh, have inspiration to connection, um, 
And uh, three yeah. action. <laughs> yeah, three action. Okay, there it is. You know, how do you embrace your challenges? Yeah. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you. Tell me how people can connect with you after they read the book. What's the best place to go? Absolutely. Well, you'll find my book on Amazon and um, you can just type in my name, Heather Deffenbaugh, or you can type in from Ashes to Beauty and it'll pop right up. It's a beautiful black cover. It's here in the background and it's got a nice purple pansy bursting from the ashes. And you'll understand the significance of that when you read the book. Um, but you can also find me on my website, heatherdeffenbaugh.com. And you can, uh, there's a link to the book from there. Then I go a lot deeper into how to thrive. Um, I talk about my five pillars of wellness, which, um, you know, I'm a professional fitness instructor and have been for 32 years, holistic nutritionist. So I have a lot of other things under my belt to help people thrive outside of the emotional and um, mental and spiritual aspects. So I talk about the physical and physiological and food and exercise. So if you really want to encompass the path to wholeness and cover all those areas, you'll find that on my website. And I have a public Instagram, Heather underscore Deffenbaugh. And um, if you want to follow my journey there. Okay. So awesome. Yeah, we'll, put that, we'll put both the website and the Instagram in the show notes so that you can find it there and make sure that you're, uh, getting the proper spelling and getting right on there. Thank awesome. you so much, Heather. Thank you for being 100% vulnerable, sharing your story, helping other people to overcome. And thanks for being an overcomer yourself. Thank you, Travis. And thank you for having this podcast so we can reach more people to help them overcome as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening, Overcomer Nation. Make sure if you haven't already, give us a five-star rating. Make sure that you share this and subscribe so you can see all of our future content. That's right. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future show, go to overcomers-podcast.com. If you're interested in our franchise opportunities with Journey 333, then go to www.journeyfitness333.com. And finally, if you like what you heard today and you feel like you're somebody that needs a bit more coaching, go to travisbarnes.com. Yeah!